0: Do you know? Have you heard? When someone asks us those questions, it makes us wonder what we missed, doesn't it? No, I don't know. No, I haven't heard. What are you talking about? We don't want to be left in the dark. We want in on the news. We want to be brought into the circle. We want to be kept in the loop. What do I need to know? What do I need to hear? This morning, we're going to Read a passage written by a prophet who asks his readers the question, Do you not know? Have you not heard? And when he tells us what he's talking about, then we're going to realize that, yes, we have heard. Yes, we do know. And then he'll ask us, well, if you already know, if you've already heard, then why are you acting like you haven't heard and you don't know? No. Open your Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 40. This morning I'm going to be reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible, Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to focus on a couple of verses, but we're going to be reading verses from throughout the whole chapter, Isaiah chapter 40. The prophet Isaiah lived in the 8th century B.C., and he prophesied to the nation of Judah The first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah are filled with prophecies of God's judgment upon the nations, all the nations around, and including Judah. And if you look back to the right before what we're going to read in chapter 39, the chapter right before the one we're going to study today, you will see what Isaiah said to King Hezekiah in 711 B.C. The prophet told the king that his descendants were going to be taken captive to Babylon. It would not happen for another 125 years after the prophet said that to King Hezekiah. But it was going to happen for sure. So the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are kind of dismal. Uh, they're, they're dealing with judgment and wrath and captivity. But beginning in chapter 40 where we are today, Isaiah changes his tone. And throughout the rest of the book, this prophet of God gives comfort to the people, reminding them that God is still God and that they are still God's people. God loves them. He has a wonderful plan for them and He will restore them and give them joy once again after their time in captivity away from the land. So in this chapter that I'm preaching from today, I want you to understand that Isaiah wasn't talking to the people who lived right there at the same time, the same place as he lived. He wasn't even talking to the people who would live 125 years later when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and took the Jewish people captive. But he, in this passage, he is talking to the people who would be living as captives in Babylon even 70 years after that. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, the prophet Isaiah wrote for a future generation, a generation that would live nearly two centuries later, a generation of Jewish people who would find themselves in captivity in a foreign land and wondering, how did we get here? And what in the world are we going to do? God knew that the people living then would be confused. They would be frustrated. They would be discouraged. They would be despairing. So God wanted to give them a word of comfort through the prophet Isaiah. And look at how Isaiah begins this chapter. Chapter 40, and verses 1 and 2, he says, Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of forced labor is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So, these words tell us who this chapter was written for. It was written for those Jewish people to be alive when the Babylonian captivity was just about to end. The chapter begins with the promise that the judgment upon them has been completed. It was a special word to them, telling them that God had not forgotten them and that He was about to end their 70 years of captivity and return them to their homeland. But although this passage was written especially for that generation of Jews, it also speaks to us today. Whenever we find ourselves in a situation or circumstance that makes us wonder whether God is really out there and if He is, whether He really knows and cares about us. This passage speaks to us when hurricanes like Harvey and Irma bring destruction to the place we live. This passage speaks to us when we find our nation's leaders clashing with the leaders of other nations leading us to the brink of war. This passage speaks to us when we hear of a gunman walking into a a small country church and killing half the congregation. This passage speaks to us when we hear story after story after story of celebrities and political leaders who have committed unethical, immoral, and even criminal acts. This passage speaks to us as our society turns away from God, His ways, His will. Would you stand with me for the reading of our focal passage from God's Word? You can read aloud with me from the screen We're going to begin in verse 27, Isaiah 40, verses 27 and 28. Read aloud with me, if you would. Jacob, why do you say, and Israel, why do you assert, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my claim is ignored by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth, He never grows faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. Now read that verse again. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never grows faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. Whatever you are facing in your life right now. I have a word of comfort and encouragement for you. I want to join Isaiah in reminding you that God is still God and that the Lord knows you. He is aware of all of your situations, your circumstances. God has not forgotten you. And he wants to remind you not to forget him. Do you not know? Have you not heard? God is still God. And God is still in control. Would you pray with me? Father, in the name of Jesus... I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and that you would preach through me. I pray that today we as a congregation would just renew our our realization of who you are and our commitment to you and our submission to you and our recognition that even when things go wrong in our lives, you are still God and you are still in control. Use this time, Father, this preaching moment. For your purposes, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So two times in this chapter, in verse 21 and then again in the verse 28 that we just read, Isaiah asked those two rhetorical questions that are intended to just kind of grab us by the shoulders and shake us. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard? And the things that Isaiah is shocked to find that his readers have forgotten are some very basic truths about God. Isaiah is amazed that the very children of God are acting as though God does not exist. They're worrying. They're complaining about their situation, their circumstances. there as they are in captivity. uh, As though God could do nothing about those situations, those circumstances. They feel abandoned by God. When in reality... They are in the very place that they are in precisely because God put them there. You know, when life is not going the way you and I plan for it to go, our first thought is to turn to God and ask, you know, what's up? We assume that He, God, like us, must be totally surprised by the terrible thing that has just come into our lives. It's as though we expect God to look at us and say, I'm as surprised as you are. I never saw this coming. Uh, I, this really caught me off guard. That's you know, What a small God we must think that we have. Isaiah wants to wake us up to the realities of who God is and how mighty and powerful and amazing God is. It's as though Isaiah wants to just slap us in the face and bring us to our senses. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Those questions are like an echo to the questions... That were probably on the minds of the Jews who were in captivity and they felt abandoned by God. They wondered, Lord, do you not know what is happening to me? Lord, have you not heard about the crisis I'm in? And Isaiah throws those unanswered questions back at the people and asks, well, do you not know that Yahweh is God? Have you not heard how great He is? You and I many times in our lives... We wonder whether God notices us and what we're going through. Many times we feel like asking God, can you not see what's happening? Why, why are you not helping me? And at those points in our lives, you and I need to be reminded of who God is and of how great God is. Now, if you'll look at verse 28, you'll see an outline for the major points that Isaiah is making about God in this chapter. If you'd like, you could even number right down through there, one, two, three, four. And those are the key points. And as we are going to be bouncing around this chapter, we're going to look at those four points and we're going to see some other verses that talk about the same thing. The four major points about Yahweh. First, He is the everlasting God. That's number one. That means that God is always God. Number two, He is the creator of the whole earth. Do you see that, that, that verse? That means that God made everything. The third point is that he never grows faint or weary. That means there is nothing, nothing that God cannot do. And then number four, there is no limit to his understanding. That means that there is nothing that God does not understand. So we're going to look at those four, and we're going to see what Isaiah reminds us about those four aspects of God here in this chapter. First, he is the everlasting God. You you might want to underline those three words in your Bible, the everlasting God. God. Each of those words and that phrase is important in understanding the greatness of God. We're going to look at the third word first. Yahweh is the everlasting God. Yahweh is not just some powerful force. Not just someone who is stronger and more powerful than any other person in the world. Yahweh is not like you and me. Yahweh is God. You know, there's a difference between God and man, although sometimes we forget it. You know, throughout history, there have been many powerful men and women, many powerful men and women who have risen to high positions, accumulated great wealth, and taken control of people and nations. But every, now listen to this, every powerful man and woman who has ever lived is either dead or dying. Our time in the sun is brief. And our accomplishments are minute compared to what God does. While we run around on this planet trying to build our kingdoms, Yahweh sits enthroned above us, clearly sovereign over all that He sees. Look at verses 21 and 22. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not considered the foundations of the earth? God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like thin cloth and spreads them out like a tent to live in. You know, we talk about sovereign nations, and that means that no one else is in charge of that nation. It's its own entity. It can decide what it wants to do. You can try to force your will onto another sovereign nation, but if you try it, then war is likely to break out because you're messing with a sovereign nation. But God is not just a sovereign nation. God is sovereign over the nations. God created the whole universe. He is sovereign over everything that exists. And even if a nation calls itself sovereign... Well, it's not really sovereign because God is sovereign over sovereign nations. And the United States of America is not an exception to that rule. We, too, are under the sovereignty of God. Isaiah makes this clear in verses 15 through 17. Look, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are considered as a speck of dust in the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Lebanon is not enough for fuel or his animals enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are considered by him as nothingness and emptiness. And look down at verses 23 and 24. He, produces, he reduces princes to nothing and makes judges of the earth irrational. They are barely planted, barely sown. Their stem hardly takes root in the ground when he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind carries them away like stubble. God is sovereign. He is in control. He even has power over the greatest nations on the earth. And he uses those nations to accomplish his purposes. God can do anything he wants to do. He is not limited by any other power. The Lord does whatever pleases him. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, is sovereignty. That is the greatness of God. Yahweh is the everlasting God. Yahweh is the everlasting God. Look at that middle word. I'm going to ask you to do something. I want you to shout out the answer to this. I want you to tell me your father's first name. Just shout it out. Tell me your grandfather's first name. Either one. Tell me your great-great-grandfather's first name. Tell me your great, 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 great grandfather's first name. Tell me your great, 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 great grandfather's first name. Are they all Robert? All of them. Well, that's easy. You know, I've only gone back a century and a half, and except for those in Robert's family. The rest of you don't even know the name of your own family members. Have you ever thought about that? You and I, we live only a few years, and then we die. We are remembered only a few generations, and then we are forgotten, but not so with Yahweh. He was God when your father was born. He was God when your grandfather was born. He was God when your great-grandfather was born and your great-great-grandfather was born and all the way back even to Noah and the ark and all the way back to Adam and Eve. Even then, Yahweh was God. And that's not all. When your very first ancestors, Adam and Eve, came on the scene, Yahweh had already existed forever. And when your great-great-great-great-grandchildren are not only dead and gone but also forgotten by their great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren, Yahweh will still be around. God has no beginning. He has no end. He is eternal. The very name, Yahweh, the name which God revealed to Moses at the burning bush when Moses asked him what his name was, that name means I am That very name speaks of the eternal nature of God. He is a God who is, a God who exists no matter where you are, no matter when you are, throughout eternity past and eternity future. God proclaims of Himself, I am. He has always existed, He always will. And most important for us, He exists right now. You see, he is not just a God of the past who created the world. He is not just a God of the future who will be there when we finally get to heaven. But he is also a God of the here and now, right where you and I live, right in the middle of everything we're going through In our lives, God is. He is the God of history, the God of before it all began, the God of after it all ends, the God of everything in between. He is the God of the here and now, the then and there, the here, the there, the everywhere, the now, the then, the anytime. Someday your problems will be gone, but Yahweh will still be God. He is the everlasting God, and Yahweh is the everlasting God. He's the one and only. He's not one God among many. There's only one God, and Yahweh is His name. Throughout history, people have been making idols to worship. They still do it today. There are many homes right here in this state where people have an idol set up in their house. They bow down and worship it. In Jonathan's, uh, Brian's brother's church's neighborhood, in that very neighborhood, all around there are people that are in their homes worshiping idols. Look at what Isaiah says about that in verses 18 through 20. Who will you compare God with? What likeness will you compare him to? To an idol, something that a smelter casts and a metal worker plates with gold and makes silver welds for it? To one who shapes a pedestal choosing wood that does not rot? He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not fall over. You know, when we take a piece of wood or stone or precious metal that was created by Yahweh... And then we fashion that material into a figure and we bow down to worship that sculpture we have made. That is the height of foolishness. We're worshiping something that we created out of materials that God created. Instead, we ought to be worshiping the God who created not only that wood or stone or metal, but also created us. And you say, well, I don't have an idol in my house. But I tell you what, we're guilty When we bow down and worship an idol, we are guilty also if we make an idol by making God out of our own imagination. Did you know that? When we say things like, well, my God would never send somebody to hell. When we say things like, well, my God would be glad that you have finally embraced your homosexuality. When we say things like, well, my God wants nothing more than for you to be happy then we are creating an idol to worship just as surely as we have picked up a branch and carved it into the shape of a monkey. God is not someone that we can make up and manipulate and imagine to be whoever we want Him to be. Yahweh is God. There is no other God than Yahweh. Yahweh is the everlasting God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? God is always God. Now let's look at the second point of verse 28 about who Yahweh is. Not only is He the everlasting God, but He is also the creator of the earth, the whole earth. Now by the whole earth, the prophet means more than just this planet. He means the whole of the heavens and the earth, the entire universe, all that God created on that day of creation when God created the heavens and the earth. Everything that is was created by God. And in verse 12, the prophet uses some figures of speech, some some word pictures, some spatial metaphors to try to describe the greatness of God. He's talking about how big God is compared to everything He has created in an effort to just get us to catch the idea of God's greatness. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand or marked off the heavens with the span of His hand? Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a a measure or weighed the mountains in a balance with the hills in the scales? You know, some Bibles translate this phrase by describing God as the creator of the ends of the earth, the ends of the earth. Not just the parts, I like that because it's not just the parts of the creation that you, you can see and know about, but even the very extremities of it. The depths of the ocean, the heights of the mountain, the farthest points of outer space. God created it all, even the ends of the earth. And that's why the Great Commission in Acts one tells us to go beyond our Jerusalem, beyond our Judea, even beyond our Samaria. And where does it tell us to go? To the ends of the earth, because God created those too. I think the Israelites must have felt like they had gone to the ends of the earth. They were exiled away from their promised land in Babylon. The land that, they, that had been given to their ancestor Abraham was out of their reach. They needed to be reminded that God had created Babylon just as he had created Jerusalem. Sometimes you and I may feel that we're at the ends of the earth, far from our family and friends in a strange place around people we don't know. Perhaps for some people even having uh, trouble with the language and the customs and having trouble understanding the money and the menus. I think about uh, Brian and Jonathan's good friends, uh, Willie, who is in India, and Clint, who's in Poland, and... You know, when they went there, they didn't know those places. To them, those were the ends of the earth. But they went, and you know what they found? They found that they were not some God-forsaken places. They were God-created places. And God was already there when they arrived. God had already been there because he created the ends of the earth. You know, maybe for some of us, it's not the ends of the earth where we find ourselves, but instead it's the end of our rope. Have you ever been there at the end of your rope? The end of yourself, the end of your options, the end of your hope. You find yourself not only discouraged and despairing, but totally depressed. Seeing no way out of the mess in which you find yourself enmeshed. Have you ever been there? I've been there. But let me assure you that when you find yourself at the end of your rope, God is there too. Just as God is the creator of the ends of the earth, He's also the creator of the ends of our ropes. I'm not saying that God brings tragedy into your life in order to hurt you. But I am saying that God has created a world. And now that this world has fallen due to the sin of human beings, the world that He has created is full of tragedy and heartbreak and crises and, and times for each of us to be at the end of our ropes. That, that is the way life is on this side of heaven. So when you find yourself at one of those points, don't think that you're alone. We have all been at those points to some degree or another. And they're all part of the fallen human existence. And when you are at those terrible, painful, hopeless places in your life, you need to know that God is right there with you. He's right there with you. Do you not know? Have you not heard? God made everything. The third thing that verse 28 tells us about Yahweh is this. It says... He never grows faint or weary. God is not limited by physical fatigue as you and I are. He will not get tired. He will not become weary of doing all that he does. You know, he never throws down his tools and says, I need a break. He doesn't do that. Psalm 121.4 tells us that, that God neither slumbers nor sleeps. He is wide awake all the time and has been for all eternity and will be for the rest of eternity. What about you? Do you ever sleep? I sleep. When I get home this afternoon, I'm going to take a nap. Are you? I love to take a nap, especially on Sunday. I I love to sleep. But did you know that sleep is a daily reminder that we are not God? Have you ever thought about that? Because God never sleeps. So every time you go to bed, you ought to remember, Hey, I guess I'm not God after all. I'm going to go to sleep. John Piper puts it like this. He says, Once a day, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. This sickness is a chronic tendency to think that we are in control and that our work is indispensable. And to cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of sand once a day. Sleep is a parable that God is God and we are only men. God handles the world quite nicely while an entire hemisphere sleeps don't let the lesson be lost on you he said god wants to be trusted as the great worker who never tires and never sleeps he is not nearly so impressed with our late nights and early mornings as he is with the peaceful trust that casts all anxieties on him and sleeps we sleep every day but god doesn't we are not sovereign but god is We can't control anything, but God controls everything. We are simply creations of the Creator, but He is God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? There is nothing that God cannot do. Now the fourth quality of God that Isaiah mentions in verse 28 is this, there is no limit to His understanding. Now the New International Version translates it like this, His understanding no one can fathom. The word fathom is a nautical term. it's a unit of measurement used to describe how deep a body of water is. And what Isaiah is saying is that God's knowledge, understanding, and wisdom are they are so deep that they cannot even be measured. Imagine yourself looking down a hole. Just just do this and look down that hole, and it's so deep you cannot even see the bottom of it. And, and, and even when you shine a light of a bright spotlight down there, you can't see the bottom. And when you drop a rock in that hole, and you listen, you wait, and you listen, you wait... To hear when it's going to hit the bottom, you never hear it hit the bottom. It's that deep. And that's how deep is the understanding of God. So deep that it cannot possibly be measured. Some translations say that the Lord's understanding is unsearchable, unsearchable. You know, in this information age, we find ourselves able to search much more easily and more effectively than ever before. Now, you may not believe this, especially those of you who are young. But just a few years ago, if we wanted to know something, we had to go to a building called a library. (laughs) And we had to go to books, and we would skim through entire books. And then we would go to a special book called The Reader's Guide to Periodicals. And we would look up keywords in that book to find magazines that had articles about the topic we were researching. And we would write that down on a little piece of paper and take it to the reference desk. And they would go get that magazine and bring it back to us, and we could look at it and take notes on it, but we couldn't take it home. We would have to get that magazine back before we left the library. Now today, I love libraries, but we don't go to them quite as much as we did We can do our research at home, in our office, or even at Starbucks while we sip on a latte or munch on a muffin. We sit in front of our own computer or our iPad or our iPhone. Using a search engine like Google or Yahoo, we instantly have hundreds of thousands of pages at our disposal. And when somebody asks me a question, I like to say, well, I don't know the answer, but I have an iPhone. And in a matter of seconds, I can tell them the answer to whatever question they have. Can you imagine? There seems to be nothing beyond my ability to search and find. But Isaiah says, the understanding of God is unsearchable. You know what that means in our information age? That means you can't Google God. You can't type God into a search engine and learn all about Him. You can never know all there is to know about God. You can never know all that God knows. You can't Google God. And you can't teach God anything either because He already knows everything. Look at verses 13 through 14. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or who gave Him His counsel. Who did he consult with? Who gave him understanding and taught him the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The answer, of course, is that no one did. No one trained God to be God. You can't teach God anything, and you can never know everything about God or everything that God knows. But although you can't know all about God or all that God knows, the beautiful truth is that God wants you to know Him and not in a surface way but in a deep and intimate way. He doesn't want you to Google him. He wants you to spend time with him. He wants you to read his word. He wants you to seek his face. He wants you to love him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And in order to do that, you need to know him in a real and personal way. So even though God is unsearchable, he wants you to search for him and seek him. Even though his understanding is unfathomable, he wants you to dive in and just see how deeply you can go. Though we cannot know everything about God, we can be sure that he knows everything about us he is never surprised by our behavior he is never stumped by our problems he is never baffled by our questions do you not know have you not heard there is nothing that God does not understand and knowing God as well as you can is immeasurably more than worth your time and effort and energy you know it's good to know that our God never gets tired but even there's even more To this good news because God actually empowers, promises that he will empower us with this supernatural strength of his. Look at verses 29 through 31. You've read these verses before. Look at those verses. He gives strength to the weary and strengthens the powerless Youths may faint and grow weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Verse 30 points out the truth that even the young are limited in what they can do. I know those of you who are young, you think you can do anything and you can work work hard all day. But I tell you what, then you're going to sleep hard all night, aren't you? But God gives strength to us that is more than the natural strength of youth. He gives us supernatural strength to face the challenges and the trials of our lives. And the best news is that He gives it not to those who are strong already, but to those of us who really need it. Those of us who are weary and tired. Those of us who are powerless and helpless. God gives His strength to us if we will trust in Him. Verse 31 says that those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. The word renew is the idea of changing clothes. You take off your tired and your weary clothes, and you put on some new power of God clothes. You know, when I get up in the morning, I'm not ready to go anywhere until I take off my pajamas and put on my street clothes. In fact, Donna Kay won't allow it. She insists that I do that. But you know, once I do that, I'm energized. I'm empowered. I'm ready to go and face the day. This renewing of our strength is like that. We take off our pajamas of human weakness and we put on our clothes of God's strength. And that strength is available to us because we are trusting God and He has all strength and power and He never grows weary or faint. When we tap into that kind of divine energy then we are able to do anything that God wants us to do. And we're able to face anything that life throws our way. Verse 31 says that those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. And look, it says, they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. You know, I love to soar. I love to run. But most of the time, day after day... What I do is walk. I put one foot in front of the other and I take the next step and I trust that God is going to plant my foot where he wants it to be and lead me. Let me tell you, don't let your walk with God be defined by the crisis that you're in right now. That's our temptation. But instead, let the crisis that you're in right now be defined by your walk with God. If you've lost your job, Do you not know? Have you not heard? If your marriage is in trouble, do you not know? Have you not heard? If you don't have enough money to pay your bills, do you not know? Have you not heard? If the doctor is giving you devastating news, do you not know? Have you not heard? If your child is rebellious and you can't seem to help him or her, do you not know? Have you not heard? If you don't know how you're going to live when you retire and you don't have enough money, do you not know? Have you not heard? If they canceled your insurance and you don't know what you'll do now, do you not know? Have you not heard? God is still God. He has always been. He will always be. He knows all about you. He can do anything and He will be there for you no matter what happens. He always has been, hasn't He? Hasn't He? And he always will be. He will strengthen you to keep going even when you have no strength of your own. This morning, I wanted to remind you of some things that most of us here already know. Just to encourage us, just to give us comfort, just to help us turn our focus from our problems to Jesus. You and I should know these truths. I mean, here we are at this wonderful church. We've heard these things before. Sometimes we forget it. We're reminded today. But did you know, have you heard, that there are some people that if we ask these questions of them, they would have to say, well, no, I, I didn't know. No, I haven't heard. They don't know about the greatness of God. They, they, they haven't heard about the love of God. They don't know about the power of God. They don't know that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to come and live a perfect life but then die on the cross to pay for our sins and rise from the dead to forgive us and give us eternity. They don't know that Jesus is the answer to every problem and every crisis they will ever face. And how will they know? How will they ever know unless you and I tell them what we know? This morning the invitation is... For you to make a new commitment to God, to, to love him with all your heart, to trust God with all your problems, and to, to share God with all your neighbors. Do you not know? Have you not heard? This morning I'm going to ask our overseers, if they would, be here at the front. And How would you respond to that invitation to make a new commitment? You might want to come to the front and talk to one of them. You might want to come and spend some time at the altar. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, Well, I'm one of those. I may have heard a little bit, but I've not heard enough. But right now, I know that I don't have Jesus to take care of me day by day. I've never trusted Him as my Savior. Maybe today you're one who says, I'm ready to make that commitment, like the one Sydney talked about a couple of weeks ago. Maybe today you're going to say, I need what you're talking about. I need that kind of relationship with God through Jesus. Maybe you want to come and talk to one of these overseers and they can share with you how you can even leave here today having that relationship. Do you not know? Have you not heard? However God leads you to respond, you do that right now. Would you stand? Father, we just thank you so much for your love, for the the greatness and power that you have, your sovereignty, how you care for us, how you meet every one of our needs, solve every one of our problems how you're always with us no matter what. You've never left us. You've never left us alone. Sometimes, Father, I I confess, sometimes I look to the past and I see those things and how you've worked in my life, and then I look to the future and I think, well, now he's going to let me down. And I confess that, Father, because you've taken care of me from day one, and I know you're going to take care of me today last. I want to live that way. I want to live that way knowing it. I want to live that way showing it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you come as God leads you. Come right now as God leads you.